Hello and welcome to the menu. Monaco's program on great food, drink and hospitality. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next 30 minutes, Vicente Todoli, one of the world's foremost art curators, on how he's working to rescue rare citrus varieties in Spain. So he took me to a place in southern France where they had these citrus on pots, many varieties. And I said, how come here these people that cannot grow citrus? Uh, make this effort. And in my land, Valencia, which is land of citrus, one of the best in the world, nobody has done it. He said, do it yourself. Then here in London we meet Portuguese top chef Enrique Pessoa, who has just opened a new Iberian restaurant, Joya. When we were thinking about the menu, I said to her, listen, you can do whatever you want, but bring savory elements to the desserts. And she told me about the chocolate chorizo. I'm like, mm, not sure about that, but, you know, it actually makes a lot of sense. All that ahead here on the menu. To the Spanish region of Valencia now, known as the best area in the world for citrus. In recent years, the mass production of oranges, lemons, grapefruits and limes has been wreaking havoc on the landscape, risking the future of many hundreds of rare citrus varieties. After decades of working in the arts, including a seven-year stint as the director of Tate Modern in London, Vicente Todoli has returned to Spain to focus his energies on building a botanical orchard to protect the famous fruits and create new varieties for restaurants and bars around the world. He sat down with Monocle's Tom Webb to discuss the work of his Dodoli Citrus Foundation. Like uh, many things in life, uh, it happened uh, as a reaction to a danger. They said, I'm a fifth generation uh, citrus specialist. Uh, although I was not trained as a citrus specialist, but an art historian and a museum curator and director. No? So in the early 2000s, the Mediterranean coast, and particularly the coast in Valencia, where this was the location, the location of the foundation and where I was born, in a very small village called Palmera, 515 inhabitants. But suddenly it doubled the population and the extension because there was a wave of uh, urbanistic corruption. Uh, and essentially, I tried to fight against it. I lost miserably, but still, okay. I still, I could protect my family land, okay? That uh, was not invaded by these uh, twin buildings, you know? But again, in 2012, I learned about another urbanistic project that would destroy the farmland in my village, and particularly also not only the family land, but also the land, the land around it. So it would destroy the landscape that had been there uh, as farmland for, uh, for centuries, you know, since the, the Arabs arrived in the 9th century. And I had a small collection of uh, citrus that my father suggested I should uh, build, taking opportunity that uh, the neighbor had died, and he said, probably the widow wants to sell. Why don't you buy it and do a small collection, uh, following the family tradition? I said, great. So I bought it. But it was private. When I learned that they wanted to build big roads and build and uh, destroy this uh, farmland, I went to the mayor and said, listen, what if I do the biggest foundation for citrus in the world, private, with citrus planted on uh, land? Because most of citrus collections, like the Medici's, are planted in uh, uh, pots and uh, orangeries, so they have to uh, move them out in April, move them in, in October. Uh, and of course, a tree doesn't express itself the same way in a pot than in the, when it's planted on the earth. And the mayor, 
I said, okay, we stop it, but you have to buy all your neighbors. So since then, I bought 24 neighbors. A little bit domino theory. You buy one, there's next one, then next one. And uh, also the inspiration in part for this Citrus collection was uh, uh, a trip with Ferran Adria. I was advising him on art, and uh, I worked on a book uh, with the artist Richard Hamilton called Food for Thought, Thought for Food. So he took me to a place in southern France where they had these uh, citrus on pots, many varieties. And I said, how come here these people that cannot grow citrus uh, make this effort? And in my land, Valencia, which is land of citrus, one of the best in the world, nobody has done it. He said, do it yourself. So already this seed was planted in me, and I started giving it a thought. I said, yeah, I should do it. So I was just uh, thinking of, of buying the neighbor and uh, one neighbor. So from 3,000 square meters to pass to 5,000 square meters. But when I learned about this uh, uh, urbanistic danger, is when I said, okay, now we have to go all the, all the way. At the beginning, I didn't know much about uh, the history of citrus. Actually, very few people know. I have had really a specialist, you know, in citrus, but commercial citrus that have visited the foundation, and they have no idea about the history of citrus. And I told them, listen, that's like if I only knew about, uh, you know, the market value of contemporary art, and I didn't know about history of art. It would be ridiculous. But that's what happened. So that gave me one more reason to, to do it. And, of course, I started doing research, lots of mistakes. I remember the first three years I was planting and I'm planting because I made mistakes in the organization. And after the third year, I had it. But still, I'm still uh, learning and uh, I'm still adding new citrus. I started with a collection of 350 citrus. Now we have 500 varieties, at least five trees of each. Uh, so that means almost 3,000 uh, trees, because some we have uh, a larger uh, amount. That is a, a huge amount of citrus. And, and you speak about the threat of the urban sprawl. Clearly, the work you're doing is very, very important in your region. But nationally, internationally, how important is the work that you're doing to preserve citrus? Yeah, well, as I have what is called a bank or germoplasm. Citrus have a, a peculiarity. Most of them you cannot reproduce by seeds. You have to reproduce by grafting. So that means that unless many uh, germoplasm banks, which are seed-based, here you have to have their trees. Only a few varieties, which are called uh, polyembryonic, you, you could uh, reproduce by seed, and it's not easy. Uh, so let's say uh, my foundation is a place where botanists come to do research, so we have uh, uh, agreements with the main uh, institutions in Spain and some abroad in order to uh, be able to use our citizens for experiments. For example, now they're trying to find a cure for uh, one of the biggest dangers of uh, that city culture uh, uh, has, which is called greening. It's in Asia, it's in Florida, and it's already uh, getting close. So they're trying to find uh, uh, varieties that will be resistant to this uh, illness, uh, which could be devastating if it comes. And also we have collaborated with uh, uh, the pharmacy uh, department of the university uh, about uh, using the albedo, the white part of citron, as a possible anti-tumoral cure. So we are open to that. But also at the same time, we are spreading it with chefs. Everybody is talking about the benefits of Mediterranean cuisine. So citrus are essential to the Mediterranean cuisine and also they are cardio-healthy food because if you use citrus to condiment, you use less salt. 
So that's also something that is very positive. And uh, also, unlike more aggressive condiments like vinaigrettes, citrus, for example, in Japan, uh, they are used to condiment, and this kind of citrus, they call them su, vinegar, like yusu, sudachi, kabosu, ebesu, etc. And also, the, let's say, the amount of uh, citrus with this variety, uh, also the essential oils are so different, the perfumes, no? So let's say that every every day I'm discovering uh, uh, new possibilities, no, with these citrus. But then we also have history of culture. The word citrus comes from uh, Latin, and it was uh, applied first to what they called uh, the golden uh, apple from Meda, Persia, uh, that was brought by uh, the botanists that were uh, traveling with Alexander the Great in Meda, Persia, fourth century before Christ. From there, he went to Greece, Palestine, Rome. And in Rome, they called it Citrus Medica. So the word citrus for the first time was used to define what is we call citron. And uh, citron then was mentioned first by Theophrastus in Greece, fourth century before Christ, then by Virgil, in, uh, and then by Ovid. So it became a symbol of the Golden Age. And the humanist in 14th century they not only they included horticulture as one of the arts, but citrus particularly as this symbol of the golden age, because this citron it was the fruit that uh, Hercules stole from the uh, Spiritus Garden, uh, and uh, it became a symbol of what they call opera or work, work in the sense of artwork that transcends time, and that's the reason why Cosimo di Medici in 1550 decided to collect citrus, mainly starting with uh, citron, and from there it started a fashion in European aristocracy to collect citrus, to build these orangeries, we were all over Europe. There was a citrus mania. Of course, it added color in winter. I call it the fruit of the winter sun. And uh, this fashion uh, lasted until end of 18th century. What happened at the end of the 18th century? Enlightenment came. And Elamid said, OK, no, no, we need to bring uh, species from outside Europe, from other parts of the world. And then the orangeries went into decay, and most, now most of them are museums or tea houses. See, you've answered my question here. I really wanted to find out the two parts of your brain, because unlike many of our guests, you've had an incredible career in a totally different field. You were the artistic director of the Tate for seven years. How does your world now collide? Are you a curator now of oranges? Well, yes, I would say uh, at the beginning I didn't know anything about the relationship between art and citrus. When I discovered that Cosimo de' Medici was the first big collector, I said, bingo. That's where both paths cross. And uh, then I said, okay, so this is my museum. I directed uh, four museums. Uh, first, uh, if I'm in Valencia, then Sir Alves Museum in Portugal, Tate Modern in London, uh, Pirelli Garbicoca in Milano. And I said, but this museum is for me. So here I can do anything I want uh, because... It's completely, uh, this is my legacy to the future. Uh, in the other museums, I was serving the goals of the institutions. In this case, I established the goals. And uh, to me, it's an amazing compliment 
to because I still am a curator. So I'm, I'm now a curator of citrus, and also I added a new line, which is I'm collecting engravings from the treaties of citruses that the first one starts in 17th century in uh, Italy. It's called Esperides by uh, Ferrari. Uh, second one, Comelin in Holland, is a version of, of the Ferrari one at the end of that century. In 18th century, we have the Volcamer. Now they, they have done a big facsimile. And in 19th century, is Riso Poto. And we have um, hand-colored engravings from all these. Uh, we have about 60 engravings. So I'm planning to do a small uh, cabinet where I can show not only these engravings, but also some artists who are donating works to the uh, foundation that have to do with uh, citrus. And then we have a small also room with products that use citrus from all over the world. Particularly, the country that uses more citrus is Japan. Japan, they have uh, adoration for citrus, and they use them for so many products. And then it will be Italy. Funnily enough, the biggest producer of, of table uh, citrus in the world, which is Spain, almost has no use except supermarket shelves. So, like museums, it's a very, very expensive business. Is, is this sustainable? Well, that's the thing that um, my foundation belongs to the umbrella of foundations hosted by the government of Valencia. It's called Generalitat. And they, they made me say, listen, uh, this is not sustainable because you are now funding it. When you die, what happens? Uh, this has to have a longer life than yours. So you have to have some income. So the first idea was to do marmalades. We do 20 different kinds of marmalades with red citrus, but not so much income. And the second idea was uh, I was approached by uh, chefs saying, would you sell us? Uh, at the beginning, I was giving them, giving them away in order that they would uh, have knowledge of these different citrus. And they said, yes, why not? So then I started selling them. And then we have Matthew Gale and Amanda Sharp from uh, Toklas. I knew them when I was director of the Modern through Fris Magazine and, and, and Fris Arthur. Who, uh, came to visit and said, listen, we have this restaurant with, uh, and we would like uh, to use your citrus and uh, be your agents in the UK. And I said, well, that's great. So... And uh, just yesterday, we did the presentation with a special menu, and then we started with an association of friends of the of the foundation, so that also people who are interested can uh, contribute. But for the moment, essentially, uh, I don't have uh, kids, so I have trees. So they're my family. They're your babies. <laughs> yes. Uh, so a big part of the foundation is protecting these very rare types of citrus. I mean, two questions here. Is there a specialist? Can you tell with your own taste buds the subtle differences? And can you create new ones? I mean, I had grapes that tasted like candy floss the other day. Exactly. So we are discovering an orange that tastes like uh, a pineapple, and it's called pineapple orange, very very ancient breed. So it was there, but, you know, you need seven years until uh, citrus will really uh, display the real taste. At the beginning, when they are uh, babies, taste changes. So... Well, I rely a lot on chefs that come to visit, and sometimes they find interesting some citrus which I thought they were not interesting. So I learn a lot from uh, chefs. And yes, uh, besides rescuing all varieties that were in extinction, that you can do like a little bit like uh, Jurassic Park. So what we do is, in, when we have uh, very, very old uh, citrus trees, like 200 year old, then we force sprouting in first the root to see the rootstock, and then uh, these trees were grafted 
through uh, his life several times. Why? At one point, he was not commercial anymore, so they did a second one, higher, a third one. So now, there we have these citrus which are extinct, and nobody knows, and some of them are amazing. And yes, we are also doing now, trying to do our own citrus by uh, hybridization, which means you take the pollen from a flower of a male citrus, because there are citrus that are male and there are some that are female, and then you put that in, uh, it has to be done now in the flower season, in the blossom season in March, April, and then you put it in a female. And then this we give to this lab where we collaborate because uh, they do research in our, in our foundation. And the fruit that grows then is uh, the seeds. They grow them, but you have, to, you have to grow several. And from these several, you have to wait until they give fruit in seven years and then decide which of them is better and if it has any interest. So we are doing we are that uh, we are doing that now. But as I tell you, we started two years ago, so it take it will take five more years. So it's always a very long process. And this is the Jurassic Park of the citrus world. People can come and visit. Absolutely, we have tours on uh, Saturdays, fourteen to people maximum, because they involve smelling, tasting, and learning about the history of citrus. And also, I conceive it as a garden. Actually, the word, uh, the citrus garden is based on the Persian garden, and that the Arabs brought to Spain. The Persian garden is called Paradise. So the word paradise comes from the idea of garden. And for the Arabs, for example, it was the closest place to paradise in the world. It always had water also, other fountains. We also built some. So because it appealed to all the senses. It was immersive experience. And also it was the place where the poets, philosophers could go and meditate or have conversations in this uh, place secluded from the world. So it acted really as a shelter yeah, for your uh, body and for your mind. So medicines, perfumes and ice creams, there's a lot coming out the garden. What can we look forward to? What are you working towards? Well, we always try to convince other people to do uh, these uh, products. We don't, we, don't, we don't want to do them. Our mission is to foster uh, society, to do more, more uh, products with, with citrus. The best uh, ice cream maker in Spain, uh, he's an avant-garde uh, ice cream maker, has an, uh, an amazing ice cream, which uh, he calls Franco Battiato, because it was developed uh, after Franco Battiato's death, and he liked Franco Battiato, which is, he does with a Japanese citrus we have from Okinawa called Shikwasa. Now I'm also trying to do with another company, small companies always, uh, sudachi chips. Potato chips, you know, with sudachi flavor. So, uh, and then also we have a gastronomic library with a, a strong presence of citrus. And uh, eventually we would like to publish a book with uh, citrus recipes based on the research of all the chefs that come to the foundation. We are also uh, going to publish uh, one book about the history of, of citrus, both in uh, botany and art. And then, since six months, we have uh, one of the best photographers of sculpture in the world, who is photographing the trees, the flowers, the fruits, like if they were sculptures. We, and we will also publish that. No? So, well, uh, lots of ideas, but uh, uh, you need time for them, and also you need uh, funding. Yeah. Vicente Todoli of Todoli Citrus Foundation there in discussion with Monaco's Tom Webb.
You are listening to The Menu on Monocle 24. The area around the former Battersea Power Station in London has gone through a huge transformation in recent years. After almost four decades since the station switched off its lights, the area has been transformed into a new neighbourhood full of life, shops and restaurants. One of the most interesting new openings takes over the top floors of one of the area's new hotels. Joya is an Iberian restaurant by Portuguese Michelin star chef Henrique Sapessoa. The place opened this week and I paid a visit to meet the man in charge. They, they asked me to present an idea of what I thought it would work here and so I, I straight away thought of, of Portuguese obviously but I also thought of Spanish because I also have a restaurant in, in Lisbon called Tapisco which is a blend of Portuguese and Spanish. Of course here would have to be something a bit more upscale because of the spice. But I still think that the initial idea of bringing Portuguese in Spanish, which would be called Iberian, because a lot of people don't know the Iberian Peninsula, it's a combination of the two countries. Uh, I thought it would be a novelty for London, and it's both flavors, Portuguese and Spanish, that that I think fit into the to the London palette. So yeah, that's that's how we started. How would you describe how your cooking philosophy has changed, and and what you do nowadays? What is your style? So I think my style, I, I can't say I have a particular style. Of course, in Alma, which is my signature restaurant, you can, you can probably see it better. You know, it's Portuguese-inspired traditional recipes that I tweak and, and play around with. But I also have international uh, influences like, you know, Asian, African, you know, like from North Africa as well. I like a lot, a lot of spices. But for the other concepts, I think I always make it more like I, I, I like to, to think of a concept as in tailor made. So I don't, I never go into a place thinking, oh, I'm going to do what I do in, in the other places. I always think, okay, what can I do from my experience? How can I create something, I wouldn't say unique, but something that makes sense to this space? Because I think a restaurant nowadays is, is much more than the cooking. You know, you have the ambience, the music, the service, and of course the food. Can we use this restaurant, Joy, as an example? You use the phrase that you have to create a restaurant that makes sense in a certain place. So how does Joya make sense in London, where we are now? Well, I think Joya, Joya makes perfect sense because I think, first of all, when people look in a restaurant of this size, because we're talking about a restaurant that has, you know, a bar that holds 100 people and a, re- a restaurant that holds another 100 people. So we could potentially in a busy night have 200 people here. You want to have fun. I think that's the first thing. Uh, you want to have good ambience, you know, so you have like nice lighting, nice sounds, nice music. You have the most amazing view to one of the most amazing iconic buildings in London, uh, you know, with the power station. And then you want to eat well and be in, in, you know, in, and have also good service. So I think if you can combine the four, I think Joya is going to be, you know, a potential hit for London. What are some of the dishes in the menu at the moment? That are your favorites? I know it's a tricky question for chefs always. It's always a tricky question because, you know, it's like asking which which one is your favorite son, you know? Uh, but I would definitely say that the Carabineiros with Orzo is, is the most Instagrammable so far. So it's kind of like we already had people on the second day coming in and asking, I want to eat the one on the photo. So for some reason, that one became quite viral in, in terms of the the Instagrammable uh, and also the flavor because of course it's, it's an amazing dish 
Um, the salted collaborage is is one of my signature. Well, it's not my signature because it's a, it's one of the most famous recipes in Portugal. But my particular version with the egg yolk confit and mix at the table has been causing a lot of a lot of talk. So those two are definitely one of my uh, my favorites. And also on the desserts, we have a combination of chocolate and chorizo, uh, which is uh, something a bit out there. How do you serve them? Well, we have a chocolate dessert. You know, like a, a dense chocolate kind of, I wouldn't say mousse, but similar texture to a mousse. Uh, and then we have a chorizo crumble and a chorizo ice cream. Uh, we always tell people we have to mix both of them together because if you just eat the chorizo ice cream, it, it's not going to work, you know. Uh, we also have pão de ló, which is something that Nuno also makes it in, in Lisboeta. And I think a lot of chefs have their own versions. In our version, we uh, ours is quite runny, and uh, we serve it with a with a cheese ice cream. And another one of my favorites is definitely the octopus salad. You know, I love octopus, so um, yeah, I think Portuguese are known for their octopus as well. Quite a few great recommendations there. I'm wondering, you mentioned about how you draw influences from around the world, from different regions. I'm wondering, where do you get your inspiration from then? And can you maybe give me some examples or even one example of how a dish was born and how the idea for it was born and where the inspiration came from? Well, I'll give you like a simple one. You know, I, bacalhau, salted cod, is something that we eat both in Spain and Portugal. In Spain, they use it very differently from us because ours is dried and air-dried air and cured. And in Spain, they, it's kind of semi-salted. So the texture is different. So I used to go to Barcelona all the time. And every time I used to go there, they serve this dish that is called shkeixada, uh, which is basically slivers of salted cod raw with tomato, olive oil, and olives. Uh, and in Portugal, we have a similar dish but we make it with the with the dried salted cod. So I thought, okay, I, I want to do a combination of both. So I want to do a dish that has the elements of the shkeixada, but it still have the authenticity and the flavor of the Portuguese dish. Because I think the Portuguese dish needs acidity, which you can have from the tomato from Barcelona or from the recipe in Barcelona or in uh, Catalonia. But I think the cod in that they have is too fresh uh, as in too wet and i also like the portuguese texture of the cod so you know it's a blend of a combination of the, the two of them but that was due to my traveling back and forth to, to barcelona and every time i see it i'm like oh we should try this with the, the portuguese cod and how was that chorizo chocolate you mentioned earlier, how was it born? The chorizo chocolate, actually, I recently had a girl working with us, Margarita, and she's a super creative chef, pastry chef. And she was the one, I told her, like, I always like to incorporate savory elements in the desserts because not only they make it more delicious, in my, in my, in my uh, opinion, and they also make it lighter because, you know, if you end up having a dessert full of sugar, it tends to be heavier when you when you finish your meal. If you incorporate certain savory elements, and of course chorizo being a savory element, so the when I when we were thinking about the menu, I said to her, "Listen, you can do whatever you want, but bring savory elements to the desserts." And she told me about the chocolate chorizo. I'm like, mm, not sure about that, but you know. And once I tried, it, I'm like, it actually makes a lot of sense. So I was really happy 
for her and for me that uh, you know that this combination came about. Not sure it's going to be a consensual dessert for everybody, but at least makes people think about it. Which I also think you know it's always good to have one or two dishes on a menu that question a little bit the the logic of things. Portuguese Michelin-starred chef Henrique Sapessoa there. He has just opened his restaurant, Joia, at the Art Hotel in London's Battersea. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at 1500 if you're listening in Toronto. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods for Great Recipes. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippip. Our studio engineer was Kelly McLean. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. From Portugal, here is Ana Moura with Arayal Triste. Thanks for listening and until next week. <laughs>